I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. So, JJ. Yes. What? Poop. Oh, I thought you were saying shit like something had happened to you, but you just meant literal. Yeah feces you were just saying it was a <laughs> is that gonna be the name <laughs> it was Literal a noun feces? and not an expletive is what you're saying correct got it it was, okay. it was a conversation starter it was like a subject you're just like boom shit yes okay so um oh this is introverts the podcast welcome it is a veterinary podcast and uh we are introverts and so then uh that's the situation <laughs> So we'll make and it weird. What's going to make it weird? We will. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> okay. So I have an email here from a veterinarian who is going to give us a case. We're going we're gonna to go through the case and talk about a few things. So this is not a case that I have seen. The uh, dog, the veterinarian, the clinic, everything is going to remain anonymous. And we are going to assign some she pronouns to, uh, we'll say, both the veterinarian and the dog in this case. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, that it's a lady veterinarian or or anything like that. We're just going to kind of try to tell a story, but it, it, it is all anonymous. Okay, so this email is from a veterinarian. She's going to tell us a story. So here we go. The patient is a 10-year-old sterilized mixed breed small dog the patient presented for an approximately three month history of weight loss the appetite was normal the pet was eating a commercially available senior type diet the patient didn't have 100 percent up-to-date wellness care as far as things like blood work and and that sort of thing but uh, the patient was up to date on vaccinations and the patient was on some monthly preventatives. The patient was on a, an ivermectin-based heartworm prevention. No flea or tick prevention right now. On physical examination, the veterinarian found that the pet was a little bit thin with a body condition score of 4 out of 9. Body condition score is a way of determining how lean or overweight a pet is. Five out of nine is considered ideal. Nine out of nine would be obese. One oh, out Lord of nine. Inc- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nine out of nine is, oh, Lord, he coming. <laughs> um, and then one out of nine would be very thin. So uh, the, this patient is a little bit on the thin side. The patient has some moderate dental tartar. The rest of the physical examination was unremarkable. The weight of the pet was six kilograms. Anytime we're seeing a case like this, I always start to get a little bit nervous about a pet who's eating well and losing weight despite that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Um, so I guess, you know, starting off, I'm going to say, you know, we're seeing, a, you know, some red flags. We need to take a look at a few things. So, JJ, what? I mean, what do you think you're as a technician seeing a patient like this? What are you going to automatically start like pulling into a treatment plan or what kind of things do you want to look at for this patient? Um, Lab work, um, urinalysis and intestinal parasitic exam. I think those are great places to start. When you're talking about lab work, you mean like um, CBC, chemistry, electrolytes. Okay, so. Basically, a, what we call a minimum database or a blood count. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And we're going to look at a chemistry profile to check and see generally if the kidneys, liver, proteins, blood sugar, those sorts of things are all in the normal uh, ranges or if we see any evidence that something is wrong. So this veterinarian uh, is directly on the same page with you, JJ. They, they ordered all of those tests. Yeah. So I have the results. The, they also did uh, order radiographs, mm-hmm. which I don't think is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have a patient that's losing weight and um, 
you know, is eating well and things like that and is, uh, you know, an older patient. This is a 10-year-old dog. I think that you have to kind of think about things like, uh, you know, do we have something hiding someplace? So radiographs were on the list, too. Yeah, that age is like, is it cancer? Is it yep. organ failure or compromise? What's What's going on? Right. For this patient, the lab work performed was fairly normal. So the complete blood count showed no problems with the red blood cells, white blood cells, or platelets. The chemistry profile was completely normal. And so x-rays were taken of the patient. And when we're screening for things like cancer, JJ, what sorts of x-rays are we going to take? Definitely uh, chest and abdomen. Yes, ma'am. You want to, you know, have three views especially of the chest abdomen wouldn't hurt either so that yeah. three views would be um left and right lateral and then a uh, ventral dorsal mm-hmm. so you look at the I side agree. and the front to the back and all that fun stuff <laughs> the whole thing we want to look at the whole the whole animal it's so a yeah. small animal you can get a dog gram <laughs> well yeah i mean i think when I, so when i was in school Radiologists would like shame veterinarians for trying to fit the whole animal on one film. And I mean, I I get it. They now also when I was back in school, digital radiography was like brand new to the point that when I was going through, um, we only learned on plain film Mm -hmm. and digital x-ray. They didn't even get digital x-ray until I was on clinics. Like, so I was like headed out the door. And he, so all of our exams and things like that were still based on plain film because the the thought was, I mean, as funny as it sounds now, the thought at the time was like, well, you know, regular veterinarians um, like in private practice are are probably decades away from having this like super fancy technology. And then I think I practiced maybe two years w- with plain film and then it was Right, you know, digital x-ray, you know, mm-hmm. and ca- has been from then on. But so anyway, what I'll say about that is I don't know the recommendations, you know, for digital x-ray if they changed at all. But when I was in school, they would get really mad if you tried to just like take the abdomen and thorax together. They really want like a view of the thorax, well, a view of the abdomen. Settings depend. I mean, if it's a smaller animal, usually mm-hmm. you can get away with it. But with larger animals... Because the lungs are filled with air, you don't have to shoot at high as high of a setting as you would the abdomen where you have more, I guess, dense items that are hanging out. Yeah. So the setting would be different. But also, if you don't collimate in what you specifically want, you can increase the amount of scatter radiation that can make you uh, a little more susceptible to uh, radiation. But... Hmm. really i mean that's what they taught us in tech school was that you know that was like their big thing collimate 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 don't yeah. hold, have the thing wide open realistically especially the newer machines the amount of scatteration you get even if the thing is wide open is pretty minimal mm-hmm. with but digital the, you mean yeah yeah that's my understanding too is that it's less because it doesn't I require as much but yeah. i mean i don't know it's I mean, you want to, you know, get as safe as possible, but to me, if you have a small dog or a cat and you can take three shots and get what you need instead of taking six shots because you have to collimate in on certain organs or certain areas of the body, then you're doing less safety-wise. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it kind of works out. It's just kind of like a individual case. Probably so. And, you know, when I was coming through, the, I I think that's a good point about the collimation, and I did not retain that <laughs> very well, clearly. <laughs> but I think especially back when you were dealing with plain film um, x-ray, so the my understanding is that the detail provided is more accurate towards the center of the film and gets less Correct. detailed as you go out to the edges. So they didn't want some important structure hanging out on an edge and not getting good detail. But with digital radiography, I mean, the de- the detail is so I mean, you can see insanely good. Yeah. So, and it's, um, the detail is so good throughout the whole thing. It, it's possible that they're not 
as militant about that now, but I've been out of veterinary school now and am like a surprisingly long amount of time. I'm constantly startled by how long it's been. So it, we would have to ask. So I will find out about that and <laughs> on another episode, yeah. we'll drop it in. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so huge sidebar back to the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, we're out with this case. The This guy has had all of these tests. He's had chest and abdominal radiographs. They look normal. He's had blood work. It looks normal. And so uh, they do a fecal exam. And a fecal parasite test is positive mm. for the presence of whipworms. So it wasn't a zebra. That's right. That's right. So the patient was treated with fembendazole for three days. The patient was changed to a heartworm preventative option that protects against whipworms. And we'll cover that here in a, in a little bit. And so then the veterinarian says, you know, moral of the story here, the, the vet had, you know, seen this 10-year-old patient eating well, losing weight despite it. The pet had, you know, reasonably good wellness care and things like that. Right off the bat, you're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, the pet has something bad. You know, like a she said she fully told the client that she was looking for cancer and then it ended up being whipworms. <laughs> and so she was obviously really happy for the dog that it had a recoverable problem, but also, you know, felt a little bit distressed that she didn't, as I say often, swing at the softballs first, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's a good uh, a good illustration of how you can kind of get led too far down, you know, one path and like kind of <laughs> have to veer back on. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In general, I guess when we have patients come in that are that are eating well but still losing weight, I mean, I think of cancer as a top mm-hmm. differential. I think of, uh, I mean, diabetes. Although usually they they're usually pretty significantly polyuric and polydipsic, so drinking a lot, peeing a lot. Mm-hmm. What what else, JJ? Do we see come in? With those specific symptoms. Um, yeah, not eating gosh. well, but still losing weight. If we had to form a differential list. Um, it's just a cat, I'd say hyperthyroid, but it's a dog. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's great. Yeah, hyperthyroidism in cats. But you're um, absolutely right. It's pretty uncommon in dogs um, to have an elevated thyroid level. Uh, mm-hmm. Intestinal disease. Um, mm-hmm. So inflammatory bowel disease. Or the cancerous, some type of GI cancer, cancerous process in the GI tract, mm-hmm. or uh, malabsorptive, maldigestive disorders. You know, yes. so there. That's one I was trying you get, to remember. Yeah, if you get to a case like this, and say, then you did, you ended up being like, oh, I forgot the fecal test, and you did it, and it's negative. That <laughs> we, we still have other places to go. You know, there's still other things it could be, but we don't, we don't want to overlook the easy things first because. Yeah. A fecal parasite test is really economical. It, you know, gives us a lot of information and then whipworms are easy, really easy to, to treat. So, so this dog had a really good outcome. So that's exciting. Yes. So, no cancer. And JJ, tell me about whipworms in dogs. They're gross. So there's, I'm just kind of go off what I know at the top of my head a little bit yeah. first. So what I do know about whipworms of the different types of intestinal parasites, they're probably more common than we think they are. Mm. Uh, it's it's pretty common to see brown worms and hookworms. And if you see whipworms, you're kind of like, oh, wow, you've got the trifecta. So they lay the uh, not as many eggs as the uh, roundworms and hookworms do. So it's... Huh. You don't see them as often, but that doesn't mean they're not there. It's just harder to find them or harder for them to show up because there's fewer eggs in the stool. Um, so like you very, could have, say you had, and I don't know, but say you had like 10 roundworms and 10 whipworms, the roundworms are going to make way more eggs than the same number of whipworms. Correct. And so then that makes it more difficult to diagnose. Absolutely. Hmm, cool. And the whipworms can sometimes mimic symptoms of parvo. 
meaning mm-hmm. they can have the bloody diarrhea. And since one of the reasons why we were kind of jumping to like maybe cancer is because this dog was a 10 year old dog. Whereas most of the time in the veterinary field, when you think of intestinal parasites, you think of puppies because their mm-hmm. puppies are gross. I mean, they're super cute, but <laughs> you know, they're <laughs> Tag, tagline for this episode. Puppies are gross. They, JJ hates puppies. Yeah. Uh, I love puppies. <laughs> I, I hate puppy visits. Oh, <laughs> puppies are what? great. No, no. Um, it's the sheer amount of education you have to try to cram into one visit that makes oh. them a little harrowing in technician land. Well, I feel like you should break it up a little bit yeah into i mean puppies have to come in i mean easily four times Mm -hmm. maybe if they get them later in life i mean but i feel like at least twice right yeah but you also i guess i mean they fear like maybe they won't come in again and so you gotta like get it all in there i mean i would say maybe uh a fourth of your puppy visits they come in one time and they don't come back um Hmm. That's it's frustrating. Super important that they do because, I mean, not to mention vaccines, but also when you're checking for intestinal parasites, it is not uncommon to come in for a visit, check for intestinal parasites, find nothing. And even if you deworm them anyway, they come mm-hmm. back in two or three weeks and then you find something. Yeah. Because you killed the adults, but that doesn't kill the eggs that are going to be hatching in a couple of weeks and then they're going to show up again. So there's, uh, you know, the CDC is always recommends doing, what is it, two uh, exams past what you find a positive one and deworm every time. So, um, yeah, I think like what I, the Companion Animal Parasite Council for sure recommends that puppies, all puppies have two negative fecal tests, mm -hmm. essentially after they start preventative, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so you, you started a heartworm prevention, they're getting it every month. Which mo- we're going to cover that too, but most most of them will cover basic intestinal parasites, but some won't get whipworms, mm-hmm. like the yeah. ivermectin-based one that this dog from the um, example was on. Yep, yep. It's important to recommend that they get the prevention that prevents all of the different intestinal parasites. And yeah. I guess it's kind of because they don't always find the whipworms in the stool samples; they think that they're not as common, but they would be wrong oh because they are just as common as the others we just don't always know it hmm interesting so looking at that i guess i didn't i didn't know that so it seems like it would be fair to say that puppies need to be dewormed for whipworms whether you're seeing them or not that's like um, with a you know with a product that for sure eliminates mm -hmm. whipworms even if you're even if you have a negative fecal test or a fecal test that's positive but doesn't show whipworms yeah that's i mean in different clinics i've worked at they have kind of different views on what they would recommend some of them like you know we'll deworm if we see anything Mm -hmm. um some of the more uh i guess progressive slash aha clinics which aha is uh they holds veterinary clinics a certain standard of care they have to do follow these guidelines and make recommendations to the client that aha kind of dictates but they're all good um but a lot of those are going to be more no matter if you find anything in the stool sample or not always give them a dewormer Hmm. for at least two of the visits and if they come in and they have two negative um intestinal parasite exams back to back and you've dewormed them both times they also recommend doing that in addition to starting your heartworm prevention is any, I guess, I don't know if there's any specific guidelines from AHA on when you start. I mean, some places will have them start at 12 weeks. Some of them say six weeks when they come in for the first start example. start heartworm prevention or right. start fecal which, testing? Uh, heartworm prevention. Heartworm prevention. Which, okay. um, I think six weeks is fine. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I'd rather do it sooner inter- rather than later. Well, I don't, I don't want to get into naming specific products, but there right. are ones labeled for puppies that young right mm-hmm. i can think of one off the top of my head <laughs> yeah yeah i can't too I mean, a mystery product containing milbamycin <laughs> that because of the way they're based on for the weight and stuff they have to be a certain um right. you get into a plus weight yeah combo. tricky stuff with that like if you have yeah. a tiny microscopic animal that mm. weighs one pound even when Ugh. they're nine weeks old 
I mean, A, you're going to, I hope you have a savings account. And yeah. <laughs> micro dogs have their own whole set of problems. Yes. Yes, they do. Okay. Well, so one thing that you mentioned as far as recommendations that you're just going over. So they recommend, I just want to clarify. So they recommend deworming in addition to heartworm prevention. Correct. Is that even if the heartworm prevention is labeled to eliminate? That might change things. Okay. Um, Because I was trying to remember this particular place where I worked, the heartworm prevention, uh, they basically would give out the free sample for the first visit. Mm -hmm. And when the free sample, you're going to use whatever you have. So Ah. if you have a product that does not cover whipworms, your uh, deworming product will help do that. You have to use a broad spectrum deworming product that covers all the different types because there's... Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's that. Plus, something else I didn't think about is, you know, saying how whipworms are just as common as the other intestinal parasites. We just don't see them as much. That may also depend on where you are in the country. Um, yeah. Here in absolutely. the lovely southeast, I mean, mm-hmm. we have all the things that crawl. and Oh, yeah. Ugh. So, here anyway, that is the case. I don't know what it's like in Montana. I'm sure you have your own <laughs> set of things to worry about but yeah but yeah yeah, absolutely we're we both are located and i've spent my whole career in the southeast jj have you too yep yeah so um we we see intestinal parasites all the time and that we have perfect conditions for them to become just endemic in the environment Mm -hmm. even in your backyard which is unfortunate but um okay so i'm thinking based on that You know, every place that I have ever worked, I've kind of, and I think a lot of veterinarians do, um, will sort of adapt the practice's philosophy about deworming. You know, Mm -hmm. like every practice I think has maybe, even if they don't have a formal medical director, which every practice should and should develop standard protocols, you know, based on medicine, (laughs) Based on research in medicine, um, they should develop standardized protocols for this reason. But I've kind of, you know, for that kind of thing, always used kind of what the practice culture was. And it's varied quite substantially from don't give any preventative dewormer unless the pet tests positive to deworm everything with something like parental pamawate like every two weeks but of course you know pyrental doesn't get whipworms and mm-hmm. so we might be m- missing the boat if we're you know if if veterinarians are using just pyrental unless they test positive for whipworms then we might be missing the boat if whipworms mm-hmm. also don't produce a lot of eggs so that's yep. interesting to think about so that that i mean what you just shared with me is probably going to change how i personally pr- practice I mean, which is exciting. That's like the purpose of the podcast, right? Is to kind of, you know, like yeah. get out of the status quo bubble and think about like what is the actually the best medical thing to do, and then they're going to do that. And when we get more information, guess what? Then you got to reevaluate what the plan is. Like mm-hmm. we don't want to just have a protocol that we keep for twenty years because that's how we've always done it. Because new information exists. Exactly. Usually, if I have. Say I have a puppy, even if they have a negative fecal test, I'm going to be getting that puppy started on a preventative. And I'll say most of the ones that the practices I work with carry actually have a label claim that they remove whipworms. Mm-hmm. So um, products containing melbomycin will treat and control, treat and prevent whipworm in- infections. So I will give that. Yeah. I'll have them go home you know, give that right away and then give a dewormer, a broad spectrum dewormer at two, in two weeks at home that I just dispense and, ha- you know, I write the date. Here's when you need to give it. Then I'll come back and do another fecal exam at the next visit. And if both of those are negative, then I kind of just keep them on heartworm prevention, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're seeing whipworms, though, sometimes it takes a while to get that under control. And I know yeah. you looked up some information about why that why that is um let's see them you were telling me about uh how hard they are to eliminate from the environment and things like that yeah they can stay in um in an environment that 
that's usually like warm, moist, moist environments. Um, they can stay in that environment up to five years. So <laughs> that that's a little scary. Yeah. And, and the infective, um, the infective stage is the um, embryonic the egg. stage. So uh, there's an egg larva in adult stage okay. uh, in the heart, in the whipworm life cycle. The adult whipworms will lay their eggs in the large intestine, and then they pass through the stool into the environment. Um, that's where I was saying that puppies are gross because if you know most people are going to have if they have a litter of puppies or if there's puppies together, you know you want them to be socialized. So most of the time they're together. Some they're not potty trained, obviously, so they're going to poop and then they're going to dance in the poop and then they're going <laughs> to lick their feet. So poop yeah, dancing. what? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a hot mess. And even if you've already you bathe them and keep them cleaned up, it, it doesn't take very long at all for them to infect themselves and to reinfect themselves. And so once the eggs are in the environment, they'll um, they'll mature to a infective state called the embryonate stage. And once they've done that, that's when they're able to reinfect them, either the host or a new host in, uh, let's see, it was like 10 to 60 days. They'll hatch in the lower intestine tract and then they attach and lay more eggs, continuing their cycle, which is gross, but that's what they do. Hookworms and roundworms have similar cycles, um, probably different days as far as reinfecting, but um, probably similar but that's generally the intestinal parasite circle of life is lay eggs and then they'll uh, reinfect themselves or a new host then they go to larval and then adult when we check for intestinal parasites what we're looking for in the stool is the eggs and sometimes you can see them in various stages of development especially hookworms those things are kind of fun you can see all kinds of stages with them they'll look like fried eggs and then they'll start to look like there's a little squiggly and then some <laughs> of them it looks like they've hatched <laughs> so it's kind of yeah. like but, Ugh, yeah uh-huh. oh. that's what we're looking for and so you can kind of see that i mean a it's going to be difficult if they don't lay as many eggs as the other ones to find them but also uh the amount of sample that we get is super important because if you have a very small sample and you're not going to have as many eggs versus if you have a larger sample. I'm not saying you should bring an entire garbage bag full of poop. Please don't your... bring a garbage bag of poop. <laughs> no. Garbage bag of poop, new episode name, I call it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it's fine to bring just, you know, what do they say, like a gram? Was it? Yeah, which is, um, I, I actually used to nugget. work in the... <laughs> I had, I used to work in the parasitology lab at Auburn University, and so like I have a whole phone spiel, you know, from back in those days. But you want about one gram of feces, which is about the end of your thumb from the last knuckle to the tip of your thumb, is about mm-hmm. the amount you want. I mean, see we're how not, professional that was. Yes, I, I can. have said it on the phone hundreds <laughs> of times. Yeah, uh, uh, a nice size nugget of joy. Is what's needed. <laughs> Gold nugget. Oh no. Yes. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Uh, so, okay. Five years in the environment. That's insane. Mm-hmm. That's an insane amount of time. It's almost as scary as parvo, but Ugh. less uh, intense. I mean, less creating of imminent death. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I mean, mean, yeah, dogs die whipworms. They, they do. do. They they can die of intestinal parasites. So whipworms tend to be kind of. A little rougher on them. I don't know. I see more issues with the the bloody diarrhea and the the weight loss. I mean, you can get it in any of them, really. But um, whipworm seems to be a little harder on on the babies. Well, so okay, where are we at right now? We we're going to talk about life cycle and like treatment and control. We talked about um, deworming strategies and things like that. Where do you think we? Is there anything on your list that we haven't hit just yet? Um, I think we do need to mention, like, if you're going to get, if you want to look for heartworm prevention that um, does prevent and prevent mainly, uh, but if you need something that also is is labeled to treat, you want to look for um, milbamycin. Products that have milbamycin in them um, should work um, for whipworms. And then, you know, I think... 
liability-wise and different things like that. You probably, if you have a known whipworm issue, you should probably use uh, something that is for sure labeled to to treat mm-hmm. and not just control. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you um, once you're past the treatment stage, getting them on something that that controls whipworms is really important. So, mm-hmm. milbamycin containing products. Off the top of my head, those include things like Interceptor, Interceptor Plus, Sentinel, and what? Trifexis. Yeah, I'm probably. looking at a, a There's list. probably others. At, there's so many on the market now. It's hard to remember. Them. Yeah. When I graduated from veterinary school, <laughs> I mean, we it was like, and you Girl, know. I hear you. We had slurbits when I first started. So, <laughs> I mean, they, I remember when the <laughs> stuff first came out and it was like, you only have to give it once a month. Holy shit, that's great. Philaribits was uh, daily, right? Yeah. What do you remember what that contained? Uh, like what medicine it was? I do not. I uh, wish I did. Okay, I'm going to Google Philaribits really quick. Okay. Um, diethylcarbamazine. That sounds bad. <laughs> Philaribits. <laughs> diethylcarbamazine. Miss- I think I'm saying that right. But this had this was not on the market anymore when I was going through school. Yeah, I've only heard stories about it. Yeah, I remember it was a Pfizer product. And is Pfizer even a thing anymore? Didn't somebody buy them out? I don't know. Oh, because I remember knows? having to order it. But I mean, there were some some older school people that were like pissed because they wanted to give their dog a treat every day, and that was their thing. Oh, so they were like, we wanted to, and we don't want to have to do this once a month thing. And I'm like, dude, don't don't fight progression. Yeah, no, right. just just give it once I mean, a month. What when the heck? Frontline came out. There was like we didn't have the topical yet. It was just the spray pumps. But even that was like I remember spraying down a dog with it and um the fleas just falling off of it and just being like, oh my god! And the dogs just like, hey, what's up? Mm-hmm. And it, it, some of those dips and stuff, the dogs would not be super feeling great after yeah. that. Some of them are kind of mildly like sedating, uh huh, or yeah, you know, can cause cancer, <laughs> right? I mean, there's old clinics that still smell like some of those dips. That's how long that mm-hmm. stuff hangs out. Like a what is it, mitoban? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one with that classic, that, a few drops and yeah, it, like that old that white color, old timey clinic odor that mm-hmm. people kind of associate. It's like a weird medicinal kind of a yeah, medicinal, almost like a medical. Yeah, like a kind of like a metallic type of smell in a way too, maybe. Yeah. But you walk into the clinic here, like, what is that low grade kind of mm-hmm. bitter smell? Uh, it's 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 mitoban that's mm-hmm. like permeated the atmosphere of the clinic and will never go away. No, it won't. <laughs> Ugh. But yeah. Um. Okay, so we talked about. Um, milbamycin. Mm-hmm. So milbamycin containing products. What's next on our list? Mm, Fenbendazole. We mentioned a little bit. Yeah. Fenbendazole containing products. Um, a common brand name would be Panicure. Um, let's see. Moxidectin and mm-hmm. Oxidero. That's where the Advantage Multi yeah. comes in. Yeah. I think that is Oh, it's like, yeah. That's the only thing on the list. And then they have like, uh, there's a list of. Uh, They're like listing products that are combos. Well, it's like, it doesn't say the product name. It says the different combos like milbamycin and spinosad. That's going to be your trifexis. Right. But, but only the milbamycin part is effective for, right. for whipworms. Yeah. The, the spinosad is uh, flea yes. prevention. Oh, we're leaving out uh, an important one, which is Fabantol. So Drontal Plus. Again, we're using uh, brand names. names. Yeah, that's the most commonly used one for doing dewormer. But yeah, so I I think that I agree. I, that's the like tablet form dewormer that I see in most of the clinics that I work in. It's really easy. It's, yeah, it contains praziquantel, pyrantel, pamoate, and fabantel. Praziquantel mm-hmm. is for tapeworms. It doesn't have any activity against whipworms. Pyrantel pamoate is the same active ingredient as in um, um, Strongid. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that yellow kind of butterscotch smelling liquid. Remember that? You don't, you don't think that Pyrantel smells like butterscotch? No. It what does like it smell chalk. like to you? Like chalk? I've tasted it before. It tastes like oh, I, chalk. Okay. I admit I have not tasted it. To I me, it smells it, sweet, though. Like it smells... Sometimes they will have a sweet kind of almost like a... 
um, but it's not butterscotch. It's something else. Like there's a different brand that it, it does have a kind of a sweet um, kind of thing. But the only thing that's ever been butterscotch to me has been Albon. Okay. I've tasted that too. Not in What? <laughs> Why? None of these were intentional, man. You try to deworm things and you don't have any help because, <laughs> you know, it's 1996 and you're doing everything by oh, your damn no. self. Shit gets squirted in your face. I've had so much shit in my eye. I've had rabies in my eye. <laughs> well, not the actual rabies vaccine. vaccine. Hopefully not rabies virus. Any and all eye. the vaccines have been in my eye before. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but yeah, I think I did actually taste the Albon intentionally because mm-hmm. it smelled so good. And oh, it was no. kind of one of those days where, you know, you were kind of bored and you're like, I dare you taste the Albon. I'm like, I right, what's it going to do? <laughs> it's, you know, it's fine. I just, you know, stuck your tongue to the, put some on my finger and I was like, I hope this isn't like contaminated Albon, but it tasted like butterscotch. It was good. Oh dear. Yeah. The other, the, the, it was strongid because it was yellow and it did, there was a sweet ish taste, but it mostly tasted like, um, like your average, uh, uh, an acid kind of. We should probably set up like a, uh, like a dewormer taste testing. Oh, that'd be funny. <laughs> Let's not do that though, for real. <laughs> we'd have to. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you know, pyrantel is used in people, mm-hmm. so we'd have to ask like what we I've not taken flavoring or something. I don't. Know. I wish my dad was still or, still alive because he for sure <laughs> would be able to tell me. <laughs> I wonder what had. Uh, oh, he'd kill me. Um, he worked in the produce department at a grocery store, and, uh-huh. and he got um, oh shit, what are those things called? Uh, well, you can put a piece of tape on the butt and uh, pull it off. Oh, pinworms! Yes, he got pinworms. Oh no! I'm working at the produce section. Yeah, but you want to know something that's like even more disturbing than that? What's that? Those are not zoonotic. So oh. he got that from somebody who had them that had scratched all in their bootay, not washed their hands, and handled. Yeah. Ew. It's a fecal oral route of transmission, but it only affects people. <laughs> oh no! Gross. I want to. He's ask gonna him murder. He's gonna straight up murder you. Maybe gonna... we can bleep his name out. It could be like beep somebody I know. <laughs> yeah. Or we could just put it in and not ask him. Eh, he'd be all right. Anywho, I want to know what they dewormed him with. And that would be interesting. <laughs> okay. Fabantol um, is a metabolite of fenbendazole. So they're related. That might be why they weren't on the list twice. But so that's the that's the ingredient in Drontal Plus that is effective against whipworms. And that's why you can't give just regular strongid pyrantel pamelweight, the yellow liquid that tastes like something that we can't 100% <laughs> agree on, but I've not tasted it, so I don't know why I'm arguing about it. Um, <laughs> welcome to my life. The, um, you can't just use that um, and have whipworm coverage. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, I've been in a lot of practices that just use pyrantel uh, like the old time yellow liquid to 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 deworm routinely for mm-hmm. and puppies like that's the go to thing and probably because it's very inexpensive you mm-hmm. know and owners like it because it's very inexpensive but if whipworms don't shed eggs or produce eggs as readily so they're less detectable does that mean that we need to like rethink that as the go to. Mm-hmm. We're going to get sued by the makers of Stronger, though. <laughs> but, you know, I'm but, just saying, I'm just asking a scientific question. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad product. I've used it for years. It's like, very safe. The last two clinics I've worked at had have gone to doing strictly the Drontal. Yeah. And not. it. I mean, I like it fine. For like, if they think, I mean, because. Hmm. Um, at a particular clinic that I have worked in the past, there was a particular doctor that would use the strongid strictly for after a, a intestinal parasite was positive for hooks or rounds, which may have been doing it a service to the animal if there was whipworms there and it was yeah. not found. That make- I mean, and I can see it both ways. And I, I mean, honestly... The the information that you presented today is going to n- change how I practice. I mean, honestly, like, 
which is how, how often do you go to CE about whipworms as a veterinarian? Well, the thing is, and I, got I can't ever think of a single time. From, you know? It was a CE that was given in a clinic. Yeah. By a uh, it was it was a medical professional that was working that was there doing a presentation for a particular heartworm prevention product. So I guess they were kind of using that information to say, hey, our product protects against these so mm-hmm. but it, i mean i've just always remembered that because i was like huh that's interesting because most of the time if you're doing a professional intestinal parasite exam you're more often going to see rounds or hooks but they were like it's you know and they had the numbers from a study it came from a study that said you know that the the, the number of eggs that are laid by whipworms is less than your hooks and rounds so it would go to you know say that that they could be there. You just, if you didn't get an adequate sample or you have to get a sample that those eggs weren't in, you could have that problem. Hmm. And that was probably somewhere around the late 2000s that that CE was done. Hmm. Okay. So, okay. This is proceedings from the Atlantic Coast Veterinary Conference in 2006, presented by Dr. Willard. And it is a talk on chronic diarrhea. And in this, uh, Dr. Willard says, whipworms can be very difficult to demonstrate on fecal flotation. Direct fecal examination will be more useful than a fecal flotation if the flotation solution is not dense enough to ensure the whipworm over will float. The major point to remember is that whipworms can be very easily missed on fecal flotation. Therefore, it's appropriate to treat any dog with chronic large bowel disease with feminazole. So he's saying whipworms are so easily missed that any chronic diarrhea dog just needs to go ahead and have like a major course of fembendazole. So now that you say that, that also I've, I remember that, and I think that was one of the reasons why one of the clients I worked at we did have the fecal centrifuge, and they were saying that that's why they use it hmm. was because of that very reason because they would pick up more things. Oh yeah, so absolutely yeah. So what? That brings up a good point. We should talk about the types of fecal uh, tests available. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like two two different ways that we're gonna gonna check. The first way would be fecal flotation without centrifugation, um, and this is still really prevalent at uh, at a lot of hospitals. So basically, the feces is mixed up and suspended in the solution. That should allow the parasite eggs to float to the top, um, be collected on a slide, and then therefore observed on the microscope. But if you add centrifugation to that part, so if you spin the solution with the feces um, at high speed, then it will aid the separation of the eggs from the solution and get more to stick to the cover slip so that they're more easily demonstrated under the microscope. And that's really the gold standard type of test. Many clinics have gone to this. Unfortunately, there are a lot of holdouts. And it might be for different reasons. Maybe, you know, centrifugation, um, it takes more time. It sure does, Uh, and it's messy. It is messy, and it kind of, like, ruins your centrifuge. So, like, you have a fecal centrifuge. Well, guess what? That's the fecal centrifuge. You can't can't really use it for other stuff. We had a dedicated centrifuge for that. It was uh, was a giant thing. Mm-hmm. And that you had to use these glass tubes that were mm-hmm. notorious yep. for breaking. Yeah. Um, before, it, like, I guess the ease of doing each one, of course, the flotation without the centrifuge is way easier. You basically mix your poop soup and put a <laughs> make a meniscus, put your slide on top, let it sit for ten minutes, and then read it. Whereas with centrifugation, you have to go through the process of straining it and then let it sit for a while and then spin it and then look at it. We kind of went through more of like doing batches. So instead of, Mm -hmm. uh, because of that particular place, we dewormed whether we had positive results or not. Um, We would, you know, when we had time, save the stool sample, then go through the process. We could run maybe eight to 10 samples at once and then look at them so that um, it was a little more, I guess uh, a little less time consuming to do it that way, but it was still, I mean, it took a lot of time, but you got better results for sure. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't know of a parasitologist who who hasn't said repeatedly, please do fecal centrifugation. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's also I think really easy to give really <laughs> specific recommendations like that when you know you're maybe not in general practice every day and you don't remember what it's like. You know, but mm-hmm. uh, so one thing that I like my favorite thing is to just send the fecal test out to a reference lab because I firmly believe that, number one, it's less expensive for the clinic, okay? Like, so you're not paying... (sighs) Sorry, we're going to get on a management soapbox here for just a minute. Climb on up, I'll Um, give you a hand. So, you know, if you're doing all of your fecal testing inside your own clinic, you're paying for technician time. Now, this is you know, potentially really highly skilled technical staff that are making a substantial, hopefully a <laughs> substantial amount of money an hour. Like you, you, we need to be paying our support staff well. Stop laughing, JJ. Okay. So you're paying a well-trained, well-paid support staff to stop what they're doing and do this time-consuming procedure. And it takes up time. It takes up equipment. It's expensive um, just the time part of it is it expensive, but it is so inexpensive to just send them out to a lab. Now, there are some things that might not test as well. So Giardia is one of them, okay? But for the vast majority of routine fecal tests that you're going to be doing in dogs, my favorite thing is to send it to a reference lab. Most of the time, if you have an agreement with the lab and do a certain volume of of testing with them, it's going to be very economical to do so. You get better results so you can feel confident that your, quote, negative fecal test really is negative. And, uh, you know, you're you're not wasting the time and supplies. I won't even get into (laughs) what some clinics, like really, really old school clinics, still do crazy stuff like washing slides and cover slips and all kind of insane stuff. That is completely ridiculous. <laughs> Been there, done uh, that. Yeah, no, don't please don't. Cover do that. slips are really hard to wash, by the way, and it's dangerous too. They are sharp and they cut you. And like, no, yep. you don't. Yeah, it's real funny. You don't need here. to be digging around in soapy water for thin, sharp glass pieces. That mm-hmm. sounds like with a no bad gloves idea. because you're not provided with any. Correct. So, like, no, let's no, 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 no. <laughs> please don't do any of that. Just. Oh, so if it's between floating a sample without centrifugation and just sending it to the reference lab, just send it to the reference lab. Like 90% of the time, that's going to be the better solution. Your staff will thank you. That's right. And sometimes the other thing that I will do that might make the staff irritated, but so say it's like, say this dog, you're just like, uh, it's five o'clock on a Friday, right? You really need to know at least some baseline information about does this pet have terrible parasites? Or is something other terrible thing happening, right? So if we're seeing parasites, we're going to just do some major deworming and go from there. Like, I, So then, yeah, float that in-house, but save part of your sample and send it out too. You know, mm-hmm. like we, you know, you can use it as like a, a triaging test, right? But like, let's not do a fecal float in the clinic without centrifugation and call it a thumbs up, we're all clear, because that, as JJ has pointed out, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what else is on your list, JJ, for whipworms? Um, I think we have covered covered the life cycle. We covered um, treatment and prevention. Yeah. That were the things on my list. Yeah. So I was going to come back and just sort of fill in some, you know, general information about you know, research um, and a few things like that. But honestly, in kind of talking about the other topics, I think we've mostly covered everything in sort of a roundabout way, which is great. So the only other thing that I was going to bring up is a study. Now, this study was not looking at whipworms specifically, okay? But since we're doing an intestinal parasite episode, I wanted to bring it up because I thought it was so interesting. So I'm reading right now from a clinician's brief article, and uh, the article is referencing a study. The study is called Dog Walking Brings Toxicara Eggs to People's Homes, 
and this was a 2018 study. So um, essentially, this was looking at roundworm eggs, but because roundworm eggs have the same level of stability generally in the environment, or at potentially whipworms are even a little bit greater, okay, we can say this probably apply, I mean, applies to whipworms and other parasites as well. Basically, what this study did was look at the prevalence of parasite eggs on the bottoms of people's shoes. Ew. Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, they took both dog feet and people's shoes. So they rinsed the dog's paws and the soles of the dog's owner's shoes after the dogs and their owners completed daily walking routines. And their goal was to identify and quantify the number of parasitic ova picked up. And specifically in this study, they were looking at roundworms. So they took this information and compared it with findings from samples of people who don't own pets. Okay, so these are, you know, dog owners plus dogs. Plus then they also did a group of people that don't have dogs. Oh, no. I see where this is going. Yeah. Okay, so... So no parasite eggs were found in the samples of uh, those who do not own dogs, possibly because these humans tend to walk on pedestrian paths and less contaminated areas. Okay. Of the samples from dog paws, 19.4% were positive for Toxicara species. Ew. So that doesn't mean these dogs had the parasite but this is the amount of exposure that they got just walking around in the environment mm-hmm. so almost 20 percent were positive even if they aren't carrying them wildlife carries them right well and so uh, for it, it depends on the type of parasite that you're talking about some parasites uh affect multiple species some only affect one and things like that but you're absolutely right that it could be you know for some types of parasites, other types of animals that are depositing these. Mm. So of the samples from the dog paws, about 20% were positive. About 11.5% of the dog owner's shoes were also positive. The egg counts in the samples went from as low as one to as high as eight. And when they went uh, back and looked at fecal flotation testing, it was negative in all of the dogs studied. So the ova were picked up from the environment. Mm -hmm. So here's what also is really exciting. Now, again, this is an episode mostly about whipworms. We'll probably come back and do other types of parasites later. But as a cat person, (laughs) I found this part really exciting. And by exciting, I mean worrisome. (laughs) So ova of Toxicara cati, that's the cat roundworm was one of the most prevalent found in both um, types. So both the, the dog feet and human feet. It was, the, it was the most common occurrence and also the most in number, making up 83% of the ova recovered. Okay, so let's think about that for just a second. If we can have like a quick sidebar, this means that These dogs and people are going out, walking around in the basic environment, coming home on their paws and shoes are eggs that can affect their indoor-only cats. (laughs) So I think this study really highlights why even if we have, quote, indoor-only pets, these guys need to be on preventatives too. So not even just me as a veterinarian, but me walking around uh, when I... (laughs) When I go play Pokemon Go, or if I go to the Greenway and walk, even though I am not taking my pet outside with me when I am coming into the house, statistically speaking, about 12% of the time I'm going to have eggs on my shoes that could harm my cats. So um, just like, you know, right now with everything that's happening with COVID-19, I think people are, some people, a lot of people are becoming aware of things like biosecurity in the home for the first time ever. Because, <laughs> you know, we have lived in a pretty, you know, kind of a, a nice clean bubble, you know, but making sure that you uh, have some protective measures set up for your pets, even if they don't go outside a lot, 
people's favorite thing to say is like, well, my pet doesn't go outside or we have a fenced in yard or we live in a gated community, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what, what, as if, right. As if parasites cared about those things. <laughs> they don't. Um, but, you know, this is scientific proof that you just walking around in your day to day activities can bring things home that are an issue. So what do we do about that? Well, the best thing to do is just to keep your pet on prevention. So and I, maybe take ma- your, it turned into a major sidebar. I thought it was going to be quick, but maybe take your shoes off and have a place to store them. That's, you know, so you don't walk yeah. around your house. Okay, so so that was the the one thing. Even though that's not specifically about whipworms, I just got really excited when I read that that study. <laughs> Strange things make me happy. So <laughs> that's where we're at. Let me just go back through my notes really quickly and make sure that there wasn't anything that. Um, but I, I think, oh, um, we need to maybe say the name of the parasite. Did we? I don't think we did. We have not. No. Yet. So the dog whipworm is Trichurus vulpus. Trichurus vulpus. Trichurus vulpus. I just remember whipworms are tricky, and that's how I remembered it uh, when I was studying. <laughs> so whipworms, um, the tri- Trichurus vulpus, are specific to dogs. Um, mm. Yeah, so they don't, you know, cats don't get whipworms from dogs there is a different cat whipworm the same is true of people so people get whipworms but it's not the dog type of whipworm it's the people type of whipworm Mm -hmm. and i had those somewhere their names anyway oh um and i found some additional life cycle information too so the eggs are when they're pooped out basically when they come out in the poo they're unembryonated they're actually not infectious at that point at all mm-hmm. and it takes about two to three weeks in the environment for um they're using the term larvated larvated so i don't know if embryonated and larvated is the same thing i guess it is must be but yeah so yes they're using the term interchangeably so larvated and embryonated they like to live in the jejunal mucosa and crypts. <laughs> <laughs> and then they finish maturing in the large intestine. Mm-hmm. Um, the human species of whipworm is the Trichurus trichuria. Trichuria? Trichurus trichuria? Yes, that. Trichurus trichuria. That eye was throwing me. So the adult worms feed on blood and mucosal epithelium. So they, they, <laughs> this is upsetting. So they kind of burrow or thread their little head ends, their anterior portion. They go through the superficial mucosa of the large intestine. And then the booty end extends into the, into the lumen of the cecum and they kind of whip. You know, like as things are going through, they move around. And so that's why they're called whipworms. Sounds like the stuff of nightmares. It is really upsetting. <laughs> um, so that's very upsetting. So they don't passively absorb nutrients. They actively ingest um, mucosal epithelium and blood. And that's what they subsist on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> So adults are found usually in the cecum, and they can also be in the adjacent portions of the large intestine. Trichurus vulpus produces eggs. It takes approximately 70 to 90 days. So that's the prepatent period. So that's kind of a long time that the individual worms have an pr- egg production lifespan of about 16 months. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the clinical symptoms are present so things like diarrhea and general like weight loss like not you know doing as well you might see blood in the stool the pet might become anemic sometimes all of that is noted before eggs are detectable in the feces because it takes such a long time so the adults are like actively ingesting blood they're actively burrowed into the um, mucosal lining of the intestines but for 70 to 90 days, they don't start producing eggs. So that's important. The immature stages can continue to develop even after treatment. Even if the um, adult worms are killed by the deworming. So this is probably because of the long life cycle 
whipworms larvae are harder to kill than adults and so we think then that it's just like a progressive it becomes progressively easier to kill them the older they get so that's one of the reasons why you can't it's not just a one and done deworming you have to deworm in stages you have to do environmental contamination uh, no <laughs> environmental <laughs> decontamination please don't contaminate the environment no. <laughs> um <laughs> to get this under control so let's see here. Uh, not all dogs have diarrhea. So the uh, dog in the example didn't have diarrhea. That's probably why a fecal test like wasn't, you know, on the top of the list of diagnostics. But many of the dogs will have an intermittent diarrhea or even just a softer stool. Sometimes blood and mucus are present in the feces, but not always. And the types of symptoms that we're going to see are um, tenesmus, which is fecal straining, we might see weight loss, um, decreased or absent appetite, and sometimes the patients can get dehydrated. Um, Especially if sometimes, they Oh, yeah. Yeah, if they're little bitty dogs, absolutely. And some patients that have really severe infections might come in weak, like depressed. They might be having an acute event from this. Um, if they're a little bitty puppy, they might come in, you know, cold, so hypothermic. They might come in with hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. They might have changes to their heart rate and things like that. And so sometimes whipworm cases can present pretty, pretty up, acutely and severely. Um, so we, we never want to just say, oh, it's probably not intestinal parasites, especially if it's a puppy or especially if it's a, uh, say, like maybe a, um, an outdoor-only patient that, um, you know, hasn't been on preventatives that, that we need to double-check in those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, JJ, I, th- I mean, have we covered it? I think... I think so. I think that's everything that I had down. Uh, the only other thing that I can think of was, I thought this was interesting, since... The advent of uh, modern-day mo- monthly heartworm prevention, um, the overall incidence of whipworm infections in dogs has declined. Um, this is in the United States. So from, from 1984 to 1991, the mean monthly uh, prevalence of whipworms in the United States was 9.6%. That's information from a university veterinary hospital. So, um, So like... During those years, so the late 80s, early 90s, 10% of the samples that they uh, ran through this university lab had uh, whipworms. Um, But when they repeated the same type of study from the year 2000 to 2007, when monthly heartworm prevention was uh, widely available, then that mean prevalence had dropped to just 2.3%. Would that and that's a big deal. So you went from ten percent down to two percent. So that means we made a a seventy five percent decrease, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, no, wait. I mean, almost. Uh, yeah, eighty percent decrease. Big almost. Difference. Yeah, a big difference. <laughs> so use those. Uh, use those preventatives. They work. Mm-hmm. They work, but they only work if you give them. <laughs> Not just for heartworms. <laughs> you have to actually administer the medication. <laughs> Oh, dear. (laughs) Why? It's it's sad the number of people that probably do buy it and then it just sits in a drawer. Oh, man, I think it happens a lot. I'm not sure why. I I, I mean, I'm not sure why. I guess people get busy. You know, people get busy or like everything, I think people tend to downplay their risks uh, when it comes to medical issues. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be. It's a little bit unavoidable right now, but mm-hmm. people have a tendency to be in denial about things. I think. And, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> so I think. I mean, I absolutely think that plays in. I, I can't tell you how many people find out, for example, that their pet has contracted heartworm disease and then get really mad. But at the same time, they haven't been on prevention. So, I, you know, it to me, it's kind of like, no, 
I mean, to me, it's kind of like not using birth control and having unprotected sex and then getting mad that someone gets pregnant. It's like, well, what did you feel like was going to occur? It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> like, it's, you know, like what share with me the outcome you envisioned, mm-hmm. because this is the one that's the most likely scenario. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, like maybe you've dodged the bullet in the past. Maybe you've had other patients that haven't had, you know, that haven't had routine care and were fine. Mm -hmm. Or I would argue you didn't know that they weren't fine. Um, You know, but anyway, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Have we decided how we're going to end these things? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think we tried to come up with a sign-off slogan, and I remember it being, like, not great. <laughs> like, it didn't go well. We tried a few things, and finally we were just like, uh, end recording. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. We can say, like, um, thank you for listening. <laughs> Which I think is, I mean, accurate. Yes. Thank if, you for if you listening, were listening to our poop stories. That's right. Fart is but the cry of a lone imprisoned herd. (laughs) Is that, uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, did you make that up or what famous person has said that, JJ? I don't know. I read it somewhere as a Mm -hmm. child and it stuck with me my entire life. Yeah. Isn't that the definition of trauma? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you could consider that dramatic. I thought it was funny, but. Okay. (laughs) uh also if you um are a veterinarian or a veterinary technician some some it needs to be people that have healthcare training a veterinary professional um please send us your stories and you might be featured your topic Mm -hmm. but anonymously so no one would ever know (laughs) yes well, thank you for listening to Introverts, a veterinary podcast by introverts who are veterinary professionals.